Baseball Italian style brings together the memories of major leaguers of Italian heritage whose collective careers span nine decades, from the 1930s to the present. In these first-person accounts, baseball fans will meet the players they cheered as heroes or jeered as adversaries, as well as coaches, managers, front office executives, and umpires at an intimate level. Join author Lawrence Baldessaro and some of the pillars of our national pastime in these historic and never-before-heard interviews. Baseball Italian style starts now. ask you first, I mean, did you speak Italian at home always with your family, a Sicilian? I spoke Italian at home, yes. Uh, I definitely did. Uh, we all spoke some. Uh, well, everyone in the family spoke Italian. With mother and dad, sure. Yeah, dad spoke some broken English. And uh, mom spent most of her days raising a family, so she didn't get involved with Americans all that much. Mm -hmm. was, we did. Yeah, we talked. I read somewhere your mom was a school teacher back in Sicily. In Sicily, yeah. yes, I've been talking. Yeah, she was a school teacher in uh, Isola delle Femmine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A grade school? What level? Do you know? Oh, and I, that I don't know. I don't know. That I don't know. Interesting. But when she came to the stage, she was a a housewife and a mother. Well, Dad came first, yes. Yeah. My dad uh, raised enough money to come over on his own with, uh, uh, and left Mother in Italy and uh, said as soon as he could raise the money, he would send for her. And uh, as it turned out, my older sister was born in Italy mm -hmm. because I guess she was pregnant just before he came over at the same time, right from there. So now, uh, it took him five years to earn enough money to send for her, but uh, he did, and of course my sister Nellie was born over there, she was the only member of the family mm -hmm. that was born in Italy. And uh, the rest of us were all born in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yep. Basically, you grew up in the North Beach area, Taylor Street? Correct. So, well, we... we uh, we had a place on Filbert Street first, about uh, two blocks away from the St. Peter's and Paul's Church, it's a beautiful church, yeah. still standing. And then we moved uh, about a block away in the middle of a hill on Taylor Street. still remember the address, 2047 Taylor Street, the bottom flat of a three-flat home. And after that, about 19... 36, well now, my family uh, settled when they first uh, arrived in this country in a little town across the bay from San Francisco and then eventually moved to San Francisco. Uh, at that time, I believe, I believe I was the only child born in San Francisco. So we stayed in, uh, I bet, residence on Taylor Street until approximately uh, 1935, 36. It was 1936. No, it was 37. 1937, my first year, I broke in with the San Francisco Seals baseball team, uh, and I was, we were living at on uh, Taylor Street, 
I remember leaving and taking the cable car to go to Seal Stadium. I had to transfer, of course, but I would pick up the cable car a block away from the house. That was in 37. So it must have been at the end of the 37 baseball season mm -hmm. when uh, we moved to Beach Street, a uh, block and a half up from the Palace of Fine Arts, which remained of the 1915 exposition that was held in San Francisco. Stayed there until, uh, and kept that home until mom and dad passed on and Joe uh, retained possession of the home. And uh, when he passed on, it was sold and, uh, by the estate. Right. Tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in the North Beach neighborhood. As I said before, we had this playground. We had a I don't know what I mentioned. We had the North Beach Playground, right by where I took the cable car to go out to uh, Seal Stadium. We spent a good deal of our time there because it was so close and the parents knew where we were at all times and we played a great deal, a lot of baseball. Joe played a little tennis, Vince played tennis. I never got into the tennis part of it. But Joe was uh, an outstanding ball player from practically day one. And the kids on Sundays, Saturdays and Sundays, used to have to come down to the playground, which were non-school days, and we played around the various parks. We had a whole slew of baseball fields around the San Francisco area, so that we played in uh, all of these various parks. We had some favorites. Funston Playground had three baseball fields on it. <clears throat> the main one had stands. And uh, when we got the game there, we thought we were doing pretty well. It was scheduled by the uh, amateurs, uh, the people who ran amateur baseball in San Francisco, so we didn't know where we played until it was announced. <clears throat> we would file uh, that we wanted to play, who we wanted to play. They put us together, and we played a certain part. Then when we'd go across the bay, for example, to San Rafael, mm -hmm. Mill Valley, Santa Rosa, Vallejo, <clears throat> we thought we were traveling. We'd take the ferry for a nickel and go across the bay, and we were traveling. We were really playing it up big. The North Beach Playground was hardtop. It was blacktop, right? That's right. It was hardtop. And you were playing ball on hardtop. And, well, we were not allowed to play hardball during the, uh, the days, the hours, that the playground was open. But we would go on Sunday mornings or Saturday mornings before the playground opened. <clears throat> and we'd use hardball and play hardball before any of the kids got to the playground. I think we played uh, until about 9 o'clock in the morning and then the playground opened up and we had to stop. And of course, often the, uh, the hard field would tear the cover off a real baseball. Mm -hmm. But we had a general store right across the street and we'd buy nickel tapes and we would tape the balls up. So, and, and as soon as the tape tore apart, then we'd tape it up again. So when you weren't allowed to play hardball, what did you do on North Beach? Well, we could play softball. We had indoor softball games. Uh, we had softball, played softball all the time, too. Okay. In general, what was life like in the Italian neighborhood of North Beach? I mean, it was fairly poor, I assume, working class. Well, it was not an elite area, but it was not... Uh, uh, it was an improvement over Filbert Street at the time, mm. so we kept improving from Filbert to Taylor and then uh, out to the marina. It was the marina yeah. district when we went out to Beach, Beach Street, Street by, the, yeah. by the Palace of Fine Arts. Then uh, we had one of the nicer homes around the San Francisco area. 
that that was about it. The, the area around North Beach was called Italian. We had a lot of Italian people there, and in latter years, the Chinese had their own Chinese town, uh, Chinatown, yeah. and that would have been uh, south of Mission Street, uh, south of Market Street, south of Broadway Street Broadway. in the North Beach area, mm -hmm. south of Broadway. Venice Avenue, Stockton, <clears throat> that would be Chinatown. Yeah. And as the years passed on, the Chinese people started to come further into North Beach. Now uh, it's, it's a whole mixture of Chinese and, uh, and everybody's in there, and the Chinese now are even, uh, they live everywhere in San Francisco. Yeah. <clears throat> so when you were kids, baseball was just the thing to do, right? Everybody played baseball? Well, there was basketball, and there was, we, we had... Uh, Soccer, uh, played a little soccer or soccer balls, uh, and we played a little checkers. Uh, they had checkers in, in the playground uh -huh. there in North Beach playground, and I actually I was about 12, 13 years old. I was a champion checker player, checker player uh, for some period of time. Were these organized by the? No, just anybody played. They had a couple of checkerboards and checkers. Anybody wanted two guys who wanted to play yeah. checkers, sit down and play checkers. Right at the North Beach Playground? Right in the North Beach Playground. They'd give you the checkerboard and the yeah. checkers, and you played against each other. And somebody watched and said, well, if you get beat, I'll play. And who's around, Robin, and whoever lasted the longest uh, was a champ. How long did you hold your title? <laughs> I don't know, a few years. <laughs> yeah, I don't recall actually ever losing. I even played uh, the, the uh, playground director, Helen uh, God, Helen Williams, I think her name was Helen. Helen Williams and another woman named Mrs. Mulligan. Yes. <clears throat> but Mrs. Mulligan didn't play checkers. Uh, Miss, uh, oh, well, whoever she was was playing a checker play, and I beat her. <clears throat> so there were playground supervisors. Oh yes, yeah. oh yes, we had playground supervisors. Yeah. And as soon as the playground opened at nine o'clock, there was no more hardball, so we get bats and get softballs, they, they, they supplied that. Okay. So we had softballs and bats, and we had basketball courts, and we had tennis courts, yeah. and we also had swimming. There was swimming there, we had a swimming pool. Yeah. And after the playground closed at 5 o'clock, we would jump the fence and go in the swimming pool. And we were warned all the time that we shouldn't do that, or they would uh, close the swimming pool, but we did it just the same. We'd lay low for a couple of days, and we'd be back again. What's the first uh, organized team you remember playing with? The first, the first team uh, might well have been the San Francisco Boys Club. I think I played some baseball for the San Francisco Boys Club, and then it was the North Beach Merchants. They they supplied the uniforms and the caps and things, uh, and the Jolly Knights. We had a club before all the kids <coughs> formed a club that we used to go and play pinochle and poker and bantan and hearts and all those kinds of things. We'd get together <coughs> in the evening and uh, you know, we had a baseball team we called, and their club was called Jolly Knights. We called the team Jolly Knights. Uh, so we played for various, and then I played a year, I think one year of American Legion baseball. Mm -hmm. How do you remember how old you were when you first wore a uniform? Uh, when I first wore a uniform, I must have been, oh, I guess 
17 or 18, 16, 17, 18, okay. 17 or 18. Uh, we mostly played in the playground without uniforms. Even when we played on the Sandlot, there was a famous slot we called Sandlot, and we played there. We used great big boulders for bases, and uh, we played with rocks for bases, and we had a lot of fun. Uh, uniform, uniform, uniform. Yeah, I'm going to get that at one point, and just before 19, I graduated from high school in 34, and I went to work worked in the box factory, then the Simmons Bed Factory, and the Simmons Bed Factory had a team also. I played with them, and then uh, two friends of mine were going to Monterey, in the Presidio of Monterey, and uh, that was uh, better baseball for three months during the summer, the school vacation. We had uh, June, July, and August uh, were three months, no, no school. So we went down to Monterey and played there uh, on this uh, Presidio, and we had jobs. Hmm. I was a swimming instructor. I think I knew how to swim at the time. But I was a swimming instructor, but nobody ever came into the pool to swim. <laughs> <laughs> so now all this time you were playing ball <clears throat> as a youngster and your brothers. What were your parents thinking about this? Vince, of course, being the oldest and uh, the biggest at the time, was playing around the sand lots, and of course he had his glove and he had his spikes. Uh, Mom, Dad didn't particularly particularly enjoy his being out playing baseball, and he thought he was wasting his time, his childhood. Uh, the Italian families always had the work ethic uppermost uh, in their mind, and they thought that you should be working. But uh, as fast as Dad used to take Vince's gloves and spikes and throw them in the trash can, mother would go back and retrieve them and hide them until Vince played again. And then dad, of course, would find him and said, oh, and mother, of course, would say, oh, the boys have to play, you know, they play. And finally, <clears throat> Vince signed a contract, a minor league contract, went to Tucson, and dad said, oh, you mean they pay you for playing this game? And, yes, they do. He said, oh, well, he says, uh, Okay, and he had to go to Arizona, of course, and uh, then he got into the Pacific Coast League, and shortly after that, after that one year in Tucson, he came back to play with San Francisco. That same year, the last two games of the season, there was a fellow named Augie Galan, who was the shortstop for the San Francisco Ball Club, wanted to go to the Hawaiian Islands, and uh, Mr. Graham, who owned the club, said, well, I can't say I don't have anybody, anybody to play, and Vince said, well, I have a brother at home who could play a couple of games at Sharp, so that was fine. Uh, he said, yeah, well, bring him on in. And uh, well, he sent Augie Galland to the Hawaiian Islands, and uh, Joe played shortstop, played the last two games of the Pacific Coast. That was triple-A, yeah. remember? He came right off the sandlots. He never played uh, any, semi any professional baseball. He didn't even sign a contract. Just played the last two games, and I believe he got a triple and a double, nine at-bats, but he didn't strike out. I don't think he strike, struck out once, hit the ball all the time. Then played some winter ball with San Francisco, and Joe signed with San Francisco, and a year or two later, Vince was traded to Hollywood, uh, and Vince eventually, after Joe went to the, the Yankees, and Vince followed him, and this all happened. I was growing up, of course, and 
Dad, one day Dad came to me and he said to me, he said, and when are you going to start playing baseball? <laughs> so you see how the pendulum swung, 160-degree turn. I don't know, is it 160, 180? 180? Yeah. That's, that's only halfway. Yeah. 360-degree turn. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so now... You said Vince had a glove and spikes. What about you and Joe? Right? Well, Joe had them. And, uh, How did you get your first glove? I mean, if your dad wasn't Well, I'm not ball. sure where we got our first gloves. I'm really not sure where we got them. But we played the playground. We played in the North Beach playground without gloves. We played with our bare hands. We played in the horse lot with our bare hands, with hardball. Some, maybe one, two, three guys might have had gloves. Yeah. But uh, they were lucky, very fortunate. Uh, where we actually got our first gloves, I can't remember. Do you remember how old you were when you got one? Roughly? No, I don't, yeah. but I, I don't really. Uh, no, I don't. But you played in high school. Well, I played my last year in high school. I was a senior in high school in 1934. That was your first year playing ball in high school? Well, no, I mean, you didn't play no, school. I played, I, no, no, yeah, I didn't play any high school baseball until I was a senior, okay, in the last year. <clears throat> I wasn't very big, but uh, I made the club, you know, the team, the, high, uh, the first time I went out with the seniors, and um, I did have, of course, I had a club then, because I'd been playing around the sandlots. And you were an infielder still, right? I was still an infielder, yeah. yeah. And I don't know where the glove came from, but uh, I did have a glove. So how did, how did you get discovered, finally, to move on into the professional ranks? There was an old gentleman who traveled all through the sandlots by Hennessy. He had a big top coat and a hat. He used to attend all these various parks. He'd go to the parks and watch games, and he'd teach the kids how to slide. He was a nuisance to an awful lot of kids because they didn't want to show off or take the time to go and practice with Spike Hennessy, but he was pretty persuasive. Then, uh, uh, as I understand, I understand he had mentioned me, but uh, the way I broke into baseball, he had mentioned Joe also. He mentioned Joe to Mr. Graham. That's what it was. Mm. But uh, I broke into baseball from the Simmons Bed Factory. I was working in the Simmons Bed Factory, and they had a baseball team, and I was playing for their team. This was after high school? After, uh, after I'd gone to the Presidio of Monterey. I'd come back from the Presidio of Monterey uh, after the summer season, came back to work with uh, the Simmons Bed Factory. The kids from the Jolly Knights got me the job. And I played for the Jolly Knights. That's what it was. Now I, I had a club because I had a club in <clears throat> Monterey when I played for the uh, for the uh, Army boys in Monterey. <clears throat> I know where I got. <clears throat> so I was working at Simmons, <clears throat> and I was I guess 20 years old at the time. My urge was to play one year of professional baseball. So I went to the uh, superintendent, Mike, who lived about a block from where we did. But I, call, I went up to him at work and I said, Mike, I said, they're having a tryout camp at Seal Stadium put on by the Cincinnati Reds and the San Francisco baseball team. And they had all these kids. They were divided. It was like an open thing. But uh, 
the two team, the two that Cincinnati San Francisco ran that, uh, the the uh, uh, session. Mm -hmm. And one year Cincinnati would have the first pick, and the next year San Francisco, and they transfer each year. Mm. So I went to Mike and said, Mike, I, I would like to go out and try to see if I have any <clears throat> ability. By this time now, uh, I had started to wear glasses on the field. Prior to my wearing glasses, I couldn't hit uh, anything. But when I started to wear glasses, one, one day I decided I was going to wear my glasses, even though the I had, there was a danger of getting hurt, and I might, and that was a shortstop. Yeah. I might get a bad hop, but I was going to play anyway because I was tired and not hitting too well. And that first time I wore glasses, I hit a ball like I had never hit before. Uh, and then, of course, the next week or next two weeks, I said, well, I'm not going to, it's too dangerous. Then I'd say, well, even so, I'm going to try it again and see if it was a mistake or whether it was uh, one of those things. Put the glasses on and hit everything that they threw me. So then I said, well, i got to start using these glasses. So I used uh, regular glasses and played, and I was hitting, starting to hit the ball pretty good at that point. So I, when I said to this Mike, uh, I was playing pretty good ball, hitting the ball pretty well, he said, well, go ahead, Dom. I said, I just, I'll just give you my two-week notice, and I'll help break somebody in because I was doing peace work. He says, don't you worry about it. He says, you go ahead and go. We'll manage, we'll get someone to do your work. And if you don't make it, come on back, you'll have your job back. This is with Simmons. Which, with Simmons, so, which what, I thought was very, very nice. It made me feel a great deal better. Mm -hmm. So I went home, told mom and dad, I said, well, I said, I won't be bringing you any money for a while because I earned the money, I'll give it to mom sure. and dad. Now, uh, when I went to the camp, San Francisco had choice, first choice and picked me. And that's how I broke into baseball. Triple A. Yeah. Never, never fooled with uh, any other mind. Never went to Tucson. So now, what did your dad think about that when you said you were? Oh, there? he thought it was wonderful. Oh, when I, yeah, they said, well, if when this is what you want to do, I said, yes, I want to do it. And by all means. Oh, they, they gave me all their blessings. They said, go ahead. But of course, Vince and Joe were already playing. They were all playing. Yeah, time, they were already so playing. Yeah. They had accepted it by that. But point. they knew I was wearing glasses too, and. They, not supposed to play baseball with glasses. Were, you the, days, were you the first in your family? I think I, oh, in your family to wear glasses. Anybody else wearing glasses that you remember? Oh, I think maybe. Uh, I think my sisters wore glasses. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> None of the boys. Did you take a ribbing on the field when you started wearing oh, glasses? Oh, pretty good. Yeah. Well, not not in a, a little bit on the sandlots, but when I came to the majors, yeah. The in minors, the majors, yeah. The minors and the majors. Yeah. With the glasses. Sure. I, got, I took it pretty good. Four eyes, that kind all of stuff? All kinds, yeah. Cocky, four eyes. And can you see how many balls you see and all that kind of stuff? Oh, sure. I got a Frankie Crosetti used to give me a hard time. Crosetti did? For the Yankees. Oh, sure. And I got even with him when I retired. How's that? <laughs> well, he was coaching third base, and we had our dugout at third base. And uh, I said, oh, I said, Frankie, I remember. I just remembered. I said, now it, the tables are reversed. And I used to tell, I, I, I was sitting at the top deck of the seat of the dugout, and I, every time Frankie went up to talk to the umpire or, or discuss it, oh, I chewed him out. I said, ump, whatever his name was, ump, I said, he'll run you right out of the ballpark if you let him. 
And uh, you, know, you, you can't call plays against the New York Yankees. They, they got with pinstripes. You can't call anything <laughs> against the Yankees, and especially Mr. Crosetti. You better listen to what he tells you, and, you'll, and if you do, <laughs> you'll, you'll be run right out of the park. So I know I gave him a hard time. Then, of course, I retired. Now, I got even. There, there was this whole string of ballplayers, Italian ballplayers from San Francisco that made it to the major leagues. I mean, Ping Bodie, <clears throat> and you and your brothers, and Crosetti, and Lazzari. There were quite a few yeah. that came up. Yes, Almost all the San important Francisco. early Italian ball players were from San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, we had quite a few. Because you had this rich baseball tradition in the town. And right? you could play baseball 12 months out of the year. Yeah. So, who, are, who are some of the other Italian ball players you remember playing with as you grew up? Well, then there were, there were the Ramondi boys from Oakland. Uh, oh, God, I have to think pretty hard to go back now. Lodi Johnny. Lodi Dario Lodi Johnny, who. He hung out around the North Beach playground with us. We had other kids who got to the minors, Trincali boys, uh, San Samino. There were, there were quite a few ball players, especially. And the uh, Sandlots, they were playing pretty good ball, too. But uh, getting into the pros, getting into the big leagues, uh, there were others. I can't, can't remember who they were. Uh, Ruggiero, I believe. There were, there were quite a few. And as you, but the guys you you mentioned were the ones that were well known, very well known. So well, as you uh, played ball and moved up, and before you got to the majors, did you encounter any kind of uh, prejudice because you were Italian? Do you think? Did you hear slurs from the fans or from other players? No, no, I didn't hear it. No, I didn't hear any of that sort of thing. <clears throat> we would in our own clubhouse. We'd use all kinds of names, and we would pay no attention to it. Among the other, oh the yeah, other we, oh sure, we needle each other and uh, call each other all kinds of names, but it was all in fun. Like what kind of names? Well, like if uh, hey, get your program. Don't let the day go by without a program. You know that sort of thing. Yeah, it was. Uh, it but you didn't find that offensive. It was just good-natured no, ribbing. No. No, never. And yeah. you never heard bad things from the fans? And the never. Really? Never. I never did. I'll tell you, some people have claimed that it was difficult for an Italian to break in with the Red Sox because it was so dominated by the Irish. You never felt that? Well, I never, never gave it a thought. I never delved into the earlier years prior to me, you may be absolutely right. Uh, I, 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 I have no way of knowing. I never, never gave it a thought. But you never That's encountered true. that. You never were aware of anything like that. No, I wasn't. Yeah. No, I would have. You know, I would have detected that. Yeah. No. But no, I didn't. Uh, I, oh, there were times when I had heard hear slurs, you know, with groups of people when they spoke about various ethnic groups, yeah. the wasps, the wops, and, and the mix, and all that sort right. of thing. Oh, it happened. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'd hear that. And there's there's still a certain amount of discrimination in the area between the wasps, the Irish, and the Italians. Yeah. There's, there's some what about leftover. As a kid in, uh, say, North Beach, did you encounter any of that growing up? 
If you went outside the Italian neighborhood, for example, to play ball? No, not that I can remember. Oh, no, we had an awful lot of kids. Beans, Marionetti. Oh, we had a whole bunch of kids who were playing baseball. Yeah. No, never got anything. Did you ever meet Ping Bodie, by the way? No, I never did. No, I didn't. Spike Hennessy, what, did he have any official capacity? No, no, <laughs> no, he was just an old guy who was a lover of baseball. He just watched baseball in the on the baseball fields in the city and would go up and he saw somebody and made a mistake and with a bad slide, he'd say, come over, I want to teach you something. Guy swinging at bad pitches, come over here and talk. And he, he, he really became somewhat of a, as far as the players were concerned, a nuisance and a pest. But uh, he stayed with it and they, they'd call him, oh, you're an old man. <laughs> but uh, he, it didn't bother him, he just kept coming back and trying to teach the kids. But he, had, he must have had some connections because he would recommend players to the profession. Well, I would assume that uh, if he recommended somebody, I would assume that they would. Uh, I think it would be the proper thing to do to yeah. uh, compensate him some financial remuneration. Uh, An interesting character because you read about him all the time and it's just never clear what, what he was doing. No, he was never on anybody's payroll. Maybe to the extent that if he got somebody and came up with somebody, maybe they'd pay him some money. I don't know. Well, what was it like when you played your first game in the Pacific Coast League? First time I came to bat in the Pacific Coast League was against a fellow named Olds, O-L-D-S. It was against the San Francisco Missions. And he threw, he threw nothing but sliders. We used to call them sailors. Hmm. He was supposed to throw a sailor in a little curve. Well, he said, and I said, well, gee, that's all he's going to throw. I look for a sailor. I hit a real shot to left field. And Seal Stadium had a fence 365 feet away. And I remember, I forget who was playing left field, went back. I had to go way back because I was a little guy, a rookie, and he was playing rather close. But I had put a charge into one. The guy caught it way up by the fence, and I, you know, when I came back, I said, gee, I can't hit a ball much harder than that. <laughs> now, were you in the outfield at this time? You had shifted to the outfield? The oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right away. Uh, yeah. Right after we, uh, right after they selected me, we had a sort of a make-up game, and rather than, put, instead of putting me at shortstop, they put me in center field. Mm -hmm. Was that because of... Even, no, even... During during the I remember there was a kid Wally Hebert I can't forget his name. He was a every time he came to bat he hit a line drive over the second baseman's head. And when we formed the two teams he was not on my team he was on the opposing team so I'm playing center field now instead of shortstop. And this kid gets up and I go way over in right center field nobody's telling me I go way over in right center field right behind the second baseman he hits the damnest line drive I didn't even have to move. And I guess that must have attracted something. So what's this guy doing way over there? Well, practically in right field. Left field, center field, open. <laughs> Left field. How and when did you develop that special style of playing center field the way you did? Right from the, the beginning, I always felt that if I were a center fielder, if I were an outfielder, I would play that way. 
I would stand that way because I felt I'd get a better break coming in for line drives or ground balls and holding guys yeah. on first who on second who were on first and going back on the ball would be a uh, I'd have a jump there. The only question was if I was standing facing left field, could I go to my left and go into right field? I had no problem with that. No problem whatsoever. I told Ryan Sandberg downstairs a little while ago, I said, I told him, I said, I used to be running before the pitch got to the batter. I was running full speed in a certain direction before the ball got to the batter. And if the ball went by, he went, the guy didn't swing at it. I don't know what the people in the fans must have thought, but here I was running like hell and in a direction I thought the ball was going to be his. Just based on where the pitch was where going? Where the pitch and was going. Yeah. Right. And what the guy was, a right-handed, left-handed hitter. Sure. Did you turn to your left to go? Easily. Oh. Well, there was a fellow, a columnist, uh, on the San Francisco Daily News, thought that Joe was the greatest ball player that ever lived, and he wrote this article. He had a column. He was a sports editor. And he had in italics when he had something important. So he would write something outstanding about Joe, and then in italics he would give me a needle. Joe's brother, he says, this kid can play, he can't play baseball. He's just in there on his brother's name, and oh, he took me over the coals. So that changed me from wanting to play one year of baseball to saying, I'm going to make him eat his words, and I'm going to go to the majors. Or, or, <clears throat> be a regular of the San Francisco Ball Club. And uh, why am I telling you this? What was the question you asked? About turning on the ball to the left <clears throat> or right? Now when he started to write that I would never be a center field and never be an outfield, how could I possibly turn to my left and go toward right field right. to catch a fly ball? And well, we played up in Portland one night, and I caught a ball behind Ted Norbert. I had two guys who were both six feet six playing in left and right field. Ted Norbert and Johnny Gill. I had a ball behind Ted Norbert and I caught it behind him. And the very next batter hit a shot to right center field and I got a hell of a jump on it. And I went behind Johnny Gill and caught that. And the next day in, in the newspaper he said, I take it all back. Who, <laughs> yeah, who, who was that? Tom Laird. L-A-I-R-D. Tom Laird. <clears throat> Stop. I'm just curious to know, what was it like when you first went east to spring training as a major leaguer? What was that like? Oh, we drove across country. Uh, it was Joe Ringo, Joe Ringo, myself. Oh, oh, why is my memory so uh, Three of us. And we split time driving. Oh, we had a barrel of fun. I was looking forward to it. We drove across country. That was, a, you know, an experience in itself. I hadn't driven across country before. Traveling. I enjoyed my trip from San Francisco to Portland, Oregon, which was an overnight thing. And they started kidding, you know, players, the older guys were kidding around. Now you got to sleep with your arm. In the hammock, you know, they, I don't know whether you go back that far, but in the berths, they had hammocks by the window. So you got to put your arm in the hammock. And I, 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 I tried because you could look out the window. And those guys are nuts. So I didn't, but I looked out the window practically all night long. I was so happy to be traveling. 
far away from San Francisco. Well, to me, it was a great experience. And driving across country uh, was, was quite an experience, and we had a barrel of fun. In those days, that wasn't an easy drive. You didn't have interstate highways. We had, yeah, that's right. We had, I think it was 66, Route 66, down through the southern part of the country, into Biloxi, and oh, we had a ball. Uh, I think we were all training relatively close so that there was no problem uh, when we arrived. Of course, then I, that, this was in Sarasota when I first came up to Boston. So what was that like getting to Sarasota and being in a big league uniform? How, were you treated well by the veterans? Did you encounter any hostility? Excellent, excellent, oh, excellent. I met everybody in the clubhouse, and they were all very nice. Johnny Orlando, the clubhouse custodian, took me around to meet the players. There were two missing when I met them all, Jimmy Fox and Lefty Grove. Jimmy Fox came straggling in after a little bit, and he came right over to my locker and shook my hand and said, uh, glad to have you aboard. Welcome to the big leagues, kid. That sort of thing. And then shortly afterwards, Lefty Grove came in, <clears throat> walked right by me, and his locker was about four lockers away from me, and didn't say anything, and sat down, and that was that. And that was uh, the beginning of a very interesting episode. He lived on the floor above me at the Hotel Sarasota Terrace, which was right there, you know, you get out of out of the hotel and the ballpark was practically adjoining. And uh, we didn't speak to each other. And on two different occasions, he had gotten on the elevator to go down to breakfast. And of course, the elevator stopped at my floor and I got on. Neither one of us said no. And on one occasion, we both happened to get in the elevator to go back up in the evening and never spoke to each other. This went on for a little over two weeks. And then the gentleman who eventually introduced me to my wife was in the hospital, supposedly critically ill. And a gentleman from uh, uh, Vermont, I believe he was, I'll get his name in a minute. Yeah, I'd love to have a glass of cold water, yeah. Um, um, uh, oh, I'll think of it after a bit. Very nice guy, very pleasant. I know, like I know my own name. Uh, came to me and said, "Would you consider going to the hospital, which is a couple of miles down the road, uh, to visit Jimmy Ferretti?" I said, "What's the matter with him?" I said, "Well, he's critically ill." And uh, they're afraid he may not make it. I said, oh, my Lord. I said, sure, by all means. Um, and so we got in the car, went out to see Jimmy Ferretti, and the guy who came to Sarasota was looking forward to meeting me, fellow Italian. And when I walked in the room and uh, this gentleman introduced me, I'll get his name. And introduced me to Jimmy, and Jimmy sat up in bed. Uh, 
wish I could remember. Stone was taken aback when he responded and reacted the way he did. He was so pleased, and we stayed there a little while, then left. And on the way back, uh, <clears throat> he said to me, he said, Dom, he said, I understand you don't talk to Lefty Grove. And I said to him, you've got to interject this man's name because it's important. I said to him, I said, that's not true. I said, Lefty Grove does not speak to me. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I said, I'm the new kid on the block. I said, I can't allow myself to go up and appear to be, in a sense, a hero worshiper, and go up to him and say, hello, Mr. Grove. I said, it's just not in me. And I said, I think etiquette dictates that Mr. Grove welcome me aboard if he so desires. And I think it's up to Mr. Grove to say hello to me. So he passed that, kind of passed it off, and said, well, Jesus, next time you see him, he said, why don't you just say hello, Lester? I said, I can't do that. Uh, I just can't do that. But we arrived at the hotel, and at this Hotel Sarasota Terrace, you had to go up two steps to the terrace. And on the terrace were a, was a very large row of wrought iron rocking chairs. And there was, there was a screen door leading into the lobby. Who should be sitting on the first chair right next to the screen door to the left of the screen door and it opened up and that from, from right to left is Lefty Grove and Johnny Orlando, our clubhouse custodian, is sitting right next to him. And of course, I have to see him. I see the other guys and everybody's having a picnic and a ball and everybody's laughing and I start to open the screen door to go into the lobby and I said to myself all of a sudden I said oh what the hell so I turned and I said hello Lefty and I continued to swing the door open and Lefty jumped out of his seat grabbed me around the shoulder shook my hand he said oh dummy oh my goodness and he went over and he picked Johnny Lefty was a very strong guy went over and picked Johnny Orlando up bodily took him out of the chair and said, let Dom sit here. He said, I want to talk to him. And we got along beautifully. From that point on, we became very, very close. Uh, I caught the last ball, that, that, uh, uh, which, which was his 300 victory, and I kept it and brought it back into him. I'm going to turn this. So, you, when you're a rookie, you're obviously quite articulate, well educated. Did you find, did you fit in easily with the ball players who generally would not have been you know, perhaps a little rougher around the edges than you were accustomed to? No, the guys. In 1940, when I came up to Sarasota with the Red Sox, it could have been more pleasant. And Cronin told me, he said, I want you batting in batting practice whether you're in exhibition games or not. I want you to bat in all batting practice. The guys never resented him. 
I could have gone in early and batted with the pitches, but uh, and they wouldn't. Come on, let's come hit I was in shape when I arrived in Sarasota. I was in shape. I didn't have. I didn't need any damn strength, and I never did, Larry. I came back from the services, uh, and we went from uh, Sarasota to Havana. And poor Jimmy Gleason, who was playing with the Cincinnati Reds. Oh, I, I, he couldn't get a base hit. He hit line drive to left center, right center, over my head, and I caught everything the poor guy hit. And it was with an effort, with a, with a big effort. And finally, one day he said, Tom, he said, what the hell have you got against me? I said, I'm not in gym. I'm just playing a game. That's all. <laughs> But to answer, go further. After I arrived, just after I arrived, because now we're on the field, and I came up rather highly heralded. I had hit 360 in the Pacific Coast League. It was his name the most valuable player in the Pacific Coast League. So I think they were expecting great things, and maybe they were expecting a bigger guy and all that sort of thing. I decided to myself, I said, I've got to be very careful how I handle this. And I decided, I just told you that I, I was ready to play open the season right there. I decided that I was going to just swing easily in batting practice, just hit line drive, a couple of right, a couple of center, a couple of left, and jog down to the bases without running fast, you know, you hit the last belt and you walk down, run out to the field. When I got out to center field to shag balls, I let line drives fall in front of me, and long balls I chase, I chase after and let them drop. <laughs> And, uh, and after about 10 days of this sort of thing, Johnny Orlando, again, this clubhouse custodian, came to me. He said, kid, he said, you feel all right? I said, yeah, I feel fine. I said, why do you ask? He said, geez, he said, you know, people are worried. Are you feeling okay? Is anything bothering you? I said, no. I said, I'm as happy as a pig in manure. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm as happy as I can be. I said, everything is just fine. Are you wrong? <laughs> so then we played our first exhibition game, which was in Tampa, Florida, against the Cincinnati Reds. And then, of course, and Paul Derringer pitched, because he was on his last legs at that point. And uh, I remember I hit a ball over the left fielder's head for a three-base hit, and then I blew the ball over the second baseman's head into right center, and I stretched the hit into a double. And uh, everything was going fine. At one point, I was on second base. With the, unfortunately, I was on second base with the bases loaded. And Peacock, Johnny Peacock, our catcher, was on third base. My brother Vincent playing right field for the Cincinnati Reds. And uh, the batter, whoever it was, who 
was only one out. He hits a line drive to right field. Immediately, I see it's immediately going to drop. Vince can't get to it. I take off at third base, and when I get there, Johnny Peacock is jockeying between a few feet from third and going back, and I'm yelling, run, run. <clears throat> but finally, the ball drops, and he starts for home plate, and I'm going head to head into home plate, and I mean head to head. And I assume that he was going to... Uh, Al Lakeman was the catcher. I remember this very vividly. <clears throat> And I had to assume that he was going to cross home plate. My God, with the bases loaded, he's going to run across home plate because Lakeman stretched out with his foot on home plate to catch the ball, and that would have forced, get, get the picture, that would have forced Johnny, uh, uh, John uh, Peacock at home, and I would have slid away from Lakeman, and I would have scored. Now, that would have been the oddity of oddities. The guy forced at home from third base, and I would have scored the run from second base. Well, as it, I wish that it would have happened. I wish Lakeman had caught the ball, because John would have been out, and I would have slid across. I started my slide, and just as I started my slide, Peacock slid. And, oh, my God, I, my, my legs straight out. And I said, gee, I said, I'm going to cut this guy up the back. So I threw my right foot out to try to prevent uh, the slide, because I knew it was safe. Lakeman dropped the ball, actually. And as I did that, my spike caught on the ground, and I twisted my ankle. <clears throat> so I was out for quite a while. <clears throat> I was kind of confined in my room. I had a sprained ankle. I would go down to have dinner, of course, and I was rooming with Mo Burke. And, of course, Joe Cronin and Tom Yorkie visited my room one day. Walked into the room, and there were stacks of newspapers all over the room. And a stack of newspapers on the one and only chair in the room. And, of course, Mo Berg, back in the, what, Mo Berg only had one hat. One top coat, uh, one pair of shoes, and the guy never had a wardrobe. <laughs> and he was happy about it. <clears throat> so they visited me, and they stood up and talked to me, and that was fine. And then they came back and visited another time. In the same situation, and Cronin wasn't about to have Mr. York stand up while we sat, while we talked about whatever we were talking about. So he picked up a stack of newspapers from the chair and tossed them on the floor. <clears throat> and of course, they spread out like a stack of newspapers would if you tossed them on the floor. It didn't make a very pleasant sack with all the other stacks of newspapers around the room. <clears throat> when they left, I went down to dinner. I don't know where Bird was. <clears throat> but I came back from dinner, and all the newspapers were gone. The closet was empty. His hat, coat, shoes, everything was gone. And there was a message from Mr. Bird. He said, Rumi, you're too popular, and my newspapers are too important to me. So I'm going to have to move. <laughs> he moved. I room moved for about two and a half, three weeks. You're <laughs> talking last night about. All this has nothing to do with being Italian, you know. Yes. <laughs> I'm just. Uh, 
rambling on here. I don't know what you can, I know I'm, you're not going to write this kind of stuff, are you? These anecdotes, I think, are part of what makes the stories interesting. You know? Again, the statistics are just sad. But, but tell me, so you were talking last night about going into the service. Um, problems you had, but you got into the Navy. What what did you do during the war? We were talking about going into Last night we were talking about when you went and volunteered to go into the Navy. Yes. Where did you spend the war? <laughs> I was inducted at Treasure Island after the season. They allowed me to finish the season. I think I said that last night. <clears throat> they inducted me at Treasure Island. I went to boot camp at Treasure Island, boot camp, and I got this infection at Treasure Island, which affected my right eye. I think we talked about that. And uh, from there, uh, I entered the Navy as a coxswain. And I put in for uh, a change of duty to, um, I wanted to become a chief petty officer. And they sent me to, I got to get this straight. When I got out of boot camp, I'm ahead of myself. When I, when I left boot camp, I served my time. And they assigned me <coughs> to a stripped-down PT boat. All the armory was gone, everything was gone, except the gun turret. The turret remained. But they knew I was a San Franciscan, and I knew San Francisco Bay like the back of my hand. So they put me in charge of the PT boat just to make errands around the San Francisco Bay area. And I had a bombman, and I had a stern line man, uh, and uh, we had a great deal of fun, and I, uh, <clears throat> I was all over San Francisco. And they saw this PT boat scooting across the van, and everybody pointed, there it goes down. <laughs> I was told that often, I said, there it goes down. I'd just like to relate one little experience. <clears throat> Captain O'Connor. I think he was a captain. Uh, I had to go to the Alameda Estuary, which is right across the bay from San Francisco, under the Golden Gate Bridge. Said to me, he said, Mr. DiMaggio, I have to get to the Alameda Estuary, and I have to get there in a hurry. He said, don't spare the horses. I said, turn line off, bow line off, and we took off. And that, that PT boat was opened up. We went up the Alameda Estuary, and he pointed to a barge. He said, drop me off at that barge. So, and the tide was coming, uh, was coming, <coughs> was coming out. So, well, I don't know. It was, it was coming out, and I was going against it. <coughs> so I made a, let me get this straight. Uh, no. Well, whatever it was, I had to make a turn to drop him off at the bar. And I made a rather, you know, if I, if I knew that uh, I was going to wait a while, I would have made a big turn and dropped him off the barge. But he said he was in a hurry, so I made a short turn, pulled right up to the barge, because I wanted to go against the tide. And I pulled right up against the barge. He got off. He had two aides with him. They got off. And I assumed they would leave when they got off the barge. But they stayed there, and they started to have a little discussion. And I, I said, what kind of nonsense is this? 
and I looked out, and here comes my wake. Now, I didn't slow down when I made that turn. Mm -hmm. He wanted to get there in a hurry. So uh, I'm looking at them, and I'm looking at the wake. So I told my my seaman there, and I said, get on the barge and hold the boat off in case the wake gets to us before they leave. So they got off the boat and got on the barge. I'm looking at them, I'm looking, and they're talking and talking, and finally the wave comes by, and they do their best to stave it up, and tap the barge. <clears throat> and Mr. O'Connor turns around to me, he says, you made that turn a little short, Mr. DiMaggio. I looked at him, he said, well done, <laughs> and took off. <laughs> then you went overseas, right? He was there talking to these two guys waiting for the wave to hit, you know, and he was supposed to be in a big hurry. What? He spent time overseas then later. Hmm. Eventually, I went to Northern Virginia, and I went to PI school. Hmm. Physical instructor school, and you had to pass certain tests. Uh, you had to know the man, a blue jacket manual inside out, and that. Uh, and I, I was dedicated. I wanted to come out of that chief petty officer when I got through. <clears throat> we had a chief warrant officer who had been in the service thirty years, and he chomped his teeth. And he came to me one day. And they had a baseball team. Oh, we had. We had quite two great teams there. One on the <coughs> naval training station where I was assigned, and we had a wire fence that separated us from the air base. The air, uh, <coughs> naval air base. And this Mr. Bodie had to, he was assigned to the training base where I was, and he had assigned certain people to the air base so that we'd have good competition. And he sent Hugh Casey over to the air base. And uh, we did, we, the nearest we had was a kid named Lefty Wilson. We did have Freddie Hutchins. <clears throat> we had a couple of pitchers. But anyway, uh, he, he wanted to make sure he had the best team to stay on the naval training station. But we had some pretty good contests, especially when Casey pitched to a close ball game. And he, was, he used to get very upset because he had given him case. At any rate, he came to me and wanted me to play baseball. I said, Mr. Bodie, I said, I, I came, I said, I didn't join the Navy to play baseball. I said, I want to finish my PI schooling and I want to come out of here and chief petty officer. And he said to me, and he chomped on and they're not giving out city officers ratings anymore. I said, well, I said, I, I, I'm hoping they will. So uh, uh, I said, I'm sorry. I, I, I want to do what I came into the Navy to do, be in the Navy. So he goes to Captain McClure. Captain McClure. Said, I asked Mr. DeMarge to play, and he wants to finish his training. He said, well, I can't fault him for that. He's going to play baseball. He said, well, he says, talk to him again and come back and talk to me. So he came over to me and he said, if you don't play baseball, I'm going to see that you get assigned to a destroyer escort, which was the most horrendous 
duty. Mm-hmm. And I said, Mr. Bodie, I said, that's why I joined the Navy. I said, whatever you send me to, I would be tickled to death to have. I said, anything you give me, I'll be very happy to have. We went back to Captain McClure's. Told him that. Captain McClure says, well, he said, what are you waiting for? He says, why don't you give him his chief petty officer's rating and have him play ball? So he came back to me. And he's chomping and chomping. He's chomping a little more than normal. What the hell's the matter with this guy? He said, you're going to get your chief officer's rating. He said, now I want you to play baseball. I said, okay. And boy, give it to me if I don't finish my training. Yes, it's all arranged. Captain McClure has arranged for you to play baseball and you'll have your chief officer's rating. In that school, in that same school was Bill Rizzuto, <coughs> Don Padgett, uh, Benny, uh, uh, Charlie Wagner, Benny McCoy, Tom Earl. <coughs> I was the only one that got the Chief Petty Officer rating. They all came out first class, uh, uh, whatever the rating was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I played baseball. We eventually were all transferred to San Diego and then over to Australia again. I'm going to, I'm rambling too much. Go ahead. Next question. They were in the service through 45, <coughs> three years. Yeah, three, I missed three, four years, sure. 26, 27, 28 years old, right in the heart of my career. Same as Ted Williams. Ted was a year younger than me, so it was 25, 26, 27. We all came back in 46. Did you see any combat when you were overseas? No, we were all always just behind. Yeah. When we got to Australia, then we went up to the Philippine Islands. I was in Australia for a year. And then we went up to the uh, Philippine Islands. And that's when we had just bypassed Rabaul, if you recall the story. The Japanese were entrenched on Rabaul. But, and we would have lost a lot of uh, personnel had we attacked them out to clean them out. So we just bypassed them. Well, they were close by. We just bypassed them. They eventually had to give up because they had no, no assistance from anybody. Can you find this guy? Get some coffee. The time is up. Talk a little bit more about Italian ball players. Um, did, did you know Rosari? I mean, he was done before you came up. But did you know Tony? I met Tony a few times. Yeah, during the off season. Kind of a shy, you know. He, he wasn't a, a very talkative guy. Kind of a quiet guy, is the way I depict him. But uh, he was a very intelligent guy. Very knowledgeable, very, very, very knowledgeable baseball player. And in fact, they everybody thought that he was probably one of the smartest baseball guys they'd seen. And I got to tell you a cute story. One time, there were uh, the bases were loaded, and Lefty Gomez was pitching. I don't know if you heard the story. I've heard different versions. <coughs> I want to hear yours. Well, this one was uh, bases loaded and one out, and uh, the batter hits the ball back to Gomez. And he starts to throw home, but he sees the guy running at first, and he says, I didn't think he'd get him. So he turned to throw to second, and he was afraid he wasn't going to get a double play. So instead of throwing it to second base, uh, to Corsetti, who was covering, he threw it to Tony Lazeri, who was between first and second base. 
And Tony Lazzari was surprised, but caught the ball in self-defense. And everybody was safe. So he, he walked in and he gave the ball to Gomez. He used to be, they call him Goofy, you know, Lefty Goofy Gomez. He said, boy, he said, they named you right. He said, what are you throwing the ball to me for? He said, well, when the guy hit the ball back to me, he said, I didn't know whether to throw home third or first. He says, and I knew that they tell me that you're the smartest guy in baseball, so I threw it to you. You know what to do with it. You heard that? That's a great story. I don't think it's true, but it's a good story. There's a saying in Italian, se non è vero è ben trovato. That's right. What about uh, Crosetti? Frankie was the guy who really got on me when uh, I first came up to the man when we played the Yankees. Oh boy, he gave it to me pretty good. Called me all the names that a guy who wore glasses could be called, and a few more. And of course, it was all in good nature, but it was still uh, everybody heard, everybody could hear it. And even though it wasn't good nature, it wasn't all that great uh, to hear it. Uh, didn't bother me all that much, really. And of course, I got it from the other teams the same way. Uh, his was supposedly good nature, but the effect was there. And uh, when I retired, I was sitting on the bench at the time I retired, and I suddenly remembered what he had done when I first came up 11 years before. Of course, he had no longer been playing. He'd been a coach for some time, and he's now coaching third base, and we, our dugout was behind, uh, the third, behind third base. And so I proceeded to get even with him. And uh, I, the only reason I got even with, with, with him was because he would uh, complain to the umpires. And I told, I was yelling to the umpires and to him. I said, yeah, go ahead, Frankie. I said, look for the next call. I said, that's the way you guys have always been. And I said to the umpires, and let him run you out of the ballpark. I said, he will, and, and because he's, he feels he's entitled because he's wearing the pinstripes and all that kind of stuff. All in good nature. Yeah. What about <clears throat> off the field? Did you spend time with him? Or? Oh, there was no. I never saw him. You know, I never see him. Not even back in San Francisco. No. No. Frankie was a kind of a uh, isolated individual. Even after, long after he retired, he never traveled very far from Stockton, California, where he lived. Stayed pretty close. He just died recently, I believe, at the age of 90. And uh, he never strayed too far. And I, I don't know how many people he would see, but I think he would only see his close friends. Now, I've, <clears throat> I've read that he wasn't always very well liked in baseball. Is that, did you see that? or Rossetti? Yeah. No, I hadn't heard. Crotchety. I hadn't heard that. Okay. No, I hadn't heard that. Well, Frankie, Frankie was an outstanding shortstop. He wasn't the greatest hitter in the world, but he hit some home runs. Uh, he spent more time in a Yankee uniform than anybody ever. Between playing and coaching, he holds the all-time Yankee record. Uh -huh. That's possible. He did pretty well financially, too, didn't he? I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure because uh, I know he, my lawyer lived not too far from him in San Francisco. He lives in Stockton. My lawyer does in San Francisco. He represents me on the West Coast. And he went by Frankie's house on a number of occasions and 
had occasion to see Frank on occasion, uh, and he lived, uh, I don't believe he was a man of means, he uh, lived frugally it appeared, and this is what my attorney told me. Now, if he, if he was well off, he uh, didn't show it by the manner in which he lived. He didn't drive an up-to-date new car and that, all that sort of thing. I spoke to him on the phone twice. And the first time, he was very cordial and talked at length. And then I had a, some follow-up questions of many months, maybe even a year later. And he was like a different person. I must have caught him on a bad day because he was really... That's very possible, real Larry. That's very possible. I can understand that. Because I know, I know that uh, I, I'm the same way. I catch me on a bad day and, and I don't like myself for it. But uh, uh, I, I can understand that. Uh, what about Ernie Lombardi? Did you know Ernie? Yes, I knew Ernie uh, because he lived in Oakland. And uh, we would go out after the season and play exhibition games. Uh, not, not a lot of them, but we'd have the Catholic Youth Organization game in Alameda, run by Manny uh, Manuel Duarte, I believe the fellow's name was. Uh, for the benefit of CYO, we had one in Oakland, we had one in San Francisco, and this Manuel Duarte had a had had a great great uh, ability to go into the audience. We'd have six, seven hundred people, and he go through the audience. He'd pick out people, baseball players who were sitting and call them, give their uh, statistics and what they achieved, and introduce them to the rest of the people. And it was amazing. Way he did it from memory. So, what do you remember about Lombardi? Well, Big Ernie, uh, the year, my third year after the, uh, at, my, at the end of the third year of San Francisco, with San Francisco in the Pacific Coast League, we played this one game in Oakland, and Ernie Lombardi was catching. And Joe Cronin had come out to scout me. Uh, Larry Woodall, who was a coach on our team, actually a coach who still played, and he was almost 40 years old, Larry Woodall and I roomed together when I was with San Francisco, and it was he was the oldest member on the team, and I was the youngest. We roomed together, and I'll tell you a cute little story about that in a minute, uh, and I assume that Joe Cronin talked to Larry Woodall, they were friendly, and asked about me, so when Joe Cronin came out to scout me, we played this one game with CYO in Alameda, across the bay, and somebody was catching us. Joe was playing shortstop, and on one, on one occasion, the pitch came, bounced in front of Ernie Lombardi, and bounced straight up in the air about six or eight feet, and I took off and stole second base. Lombardi, nobody dared steal on Lombardi. He had a great arm. Oh, he had a wonderful arm. He wouldn't dare steal on Lombardi. And uh, I slid into second base safely, and Joe Cronin put the tag on me too late. He said, nice going, kid. And uh, I didn't know what he meant until later on. I said, you don't run on Lombardi. Uh, so then I got two or three hits uh, in that ball game, and caught some fly balls. And then we're running out. That's okay. Then, right after that, we played a second exhibition game in San Francisco. And we had a kid on our team, the San Francisco Seals, named Larry Powell, Larry Lefty Powell. Joe Cronin came out to scout me and was interested in looking at me to 
possibly take me up to Boston. Mm -hmm. And I guess he had made up his mind after that second game in San Francisco because I, again, had a very good day. But in the process, Lefty Powell pitched for our side and struck Cronin out three times. And Cronin said, you're going to have to throw Lefty Powell in with my off. I guess he boosted the office somewhat. And uh, Charlie Graham said, okay, you got him. He was a very promising left-handed pitcher. So uh, he came along with me, but never came to the major. Uh, lefty never came to the major. I understand Powell is still with me today. And that's how, uh, that's how it happened. That's how he got me in. That, that's Lombardi. Yeah. Oh, the point I'm trying to make is that this, this little ball that went up six feet came down. He threw the ball, made a great throw. I got a great jump, a good slide. <laughs> well, he's not considered one of the great defensive catchers, but he did have a great arm. I mean, he was considered one of the great catchers. Well, I, I thought he was. Uh, he had a lot of pass balls. He led the league in pass balls. Ah, they tell me he used to catch balls thrown by the pitcher barehanded. Oh, yeah. Huge. Sure. Well, I, I, I always... Uh, I was under the impression that so he was you didn't an excellent him, You didn't see him play two offs. No, and was he played in that a, uh, well, he was in Cincinnati. He had to be because when he came to bat the first time and I played center field in that exhibition game, Conan was playing short. We had a concrete fence that surrounded right field and center field. And uh, I'm behind second base and Cronin kept pushing me out and pushing me out. And I was only 10 feet from the concrete wall. And I, I thought, this is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, this is crazy. I said, I, I have no business being, I could, 10 feet, three steps, I could cover that distance on the hardest line drive that a man can hit. I said, I thought it was ridiculous. But as it turns out, Lombardi hits a high pop fly right behind Cronin. Cronin was on his last legs at this point. So he comes, he comes charging back, and I'm coming in at full speed, and finally he stops because he can't come back anymore. And, and he says, come on. And I went, the ball bounced in front of me. And I said, Joe, I'm too deep. So yeah, I guess you were. And uh, then after that, after that, on opening day, uh, it wasn't opening day. I think we went from Philadelphia to whatever it was. We were in Washington. And he had a tendency to move me here and there. And uh, Cecil Travis, tall, thin, left-handed hitter, flying hitter, was a notorious left-field hitter, even though he batted left-handed. There were a few of those in the majors back then. Harry Walker was another one. He was in that 46 World Series. But at any rate, Cronin kept moving me over toward Ted and left field. And again, I could almost shake hands with Ted, and it was just nonsensical. So when the ball was thrown, and I could see it was inside, I took off for center field. And Cecil Travis hit the ball right over Bobby Doerr's head. I charge after, and I was able to cut the ball off. Now in Washington, I don't know if you're familiar with it, center field was, appeared to be miles away. So if the ball got into the right center field corner, it could easily be an inside the park and run. I went over and I cut the ball off. 
But now Bobby Doerr had come out to retrieve the relay, and Joe Cronin didn't even bother to turn around from his shortstop position because he knew that the ball was going into the right field corner. And he stayed at his position, and Cecil Travis rounded first base, and he started for second, and I had the ball, I'm holding the ball in my hand, trying to throw to second base, but there's nobody there. So finally, everybody, everybody yelled, Joe, and he finally turned around, and when he saw me with the ball, he jumped straight up in the air and then ran to second base. I threw the ball into him, and I put my hands on my hips, and he looked at me, and he looked at the ball, and he looked where I was playing. From that time on, he never bothered to move in. <laughs> so you didn't really know Lombardi personally very well? Oh, not, no. No, no, just, but, but I ran but, into him a few had the times. But he had the reputation of being a, a great hitter. Oh, yes. A light drive yes. hitter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Infielders used to play out in the oh, outfield sure. grass because he was so slow, very lumbering. They played deep on He still had a great hitting percentage, part of it all. Oh, it's amazing. Ted, Ted said he was one of the best hitters. Yeah, probably was. Can you imagine all players today beat out? Uh, I was talking to Ryan Sandberg last night, yesterday afternoon, and he said at one point he had 34 infield hits. Now, can you imagine if, if Lombardi had one-third of them yeah. each year? Now, when, when you were playing the great Yankee, Red Sox rivalry, obviously, did you feel always that you were competing with your brother? Well, I, I may have... Uh, I may have, not knowing, not knowingly. Uh, I think I was competing against the New York Yankees. I had a great desire and a determined to beat the Yankees. And Joe was part of the Yankees. So I guess in that respect, you might, you might say, uh, in a sense, I was. But uh, I knew there was, you know, there was a big difference. Joe was much bigger than I was, and he hit the ball uh, harder than I did. Uh, big distance. And as you look back, you think you didn't get as much recognition as you should have because he was there? Well, not only Joe, Larry, but because of Ted. You know, I've got Ted on one side of me, and Joe's uh, my brother. I was privileged, you know, to be Joe's brother and be a teammate with Teddy during my entire career. And uh, I love both of the guys. And of course, uh, you got to remember, uh, you heard me in, in that uh, dissertation at the fan fest yesterday afternoon. I said, when you stop to think of it, when management on and or the public voted for all-stars. I said, there was only one outfield position open because those two guys monopolized two of the positions. And I was very pleased. I started three times with those two guys next to me, meaning, in effect, that of the remaining, I was a guy who were entitled to play with them. But I thought that was a big privilege. But in spite of that, I mean, I think most people would say that you were underrated. Oh, I, I think that there's, there's I, I don't think there's a, uh, a doubt that that people have now been saying for some years that I have been grossly underrated. Yes, it's, it's been a common saying 
in recent years. Yeah. I mean, you had so many things. Ted, your brother, the fact you wore glasses. Right. The fact that you right. weren't big. Right. I, I think that's... And I wasn't in the big city. <laughs> that helped. Nothing like New York. That's right. That's right. So was, was it always a friendly rivalry with your brother off the field? Or? Oh, sure. You know, we... Because uh, he had his associates and friends, and some of them were mutual. And I had, but he had his own in New York. I had mine in Boston. Oh, sure. It, uh, it's a friendly... Competitive. It must, it must have been difficult for your parents. I mean, oh, I think they played against they each did, other. Yeah, it didn't make any difference. I, I know that uh, when uh, when we were at one point, the, my folks were over for my wedding, and we're at Fenway Park. Uh, it was the last game. We had just knocked the Yankees all out of the pennant. The last day of the season. And Joe had a great day because the year before, the day before, on the way home, there was silence for a very, very long time. And finally, Joe broke the silence. We were two friends. Well, he opened this conversation by saying, you knocked us out of the pennant today. He says, I'll see to it that I knock you out of the pennant tomorrow. Because this was a three-way thing with uh, Cleveland and uh, New York and the Red Sox. And of course, I retorted by saying, well, I said, I think you're underestimating my potential. And it ended up, he had a great day. But I also had a pretty good day. I had a home run up, I think it was Rashid, and had three hits. And he had a great day. And at one point, he had a ball that almost went through the left field wall. A great monster, green monster. And he had a long leg, and he, the entire, the entire attendance stood on their feet and applauded him for minutes on the final day, and he did his this best. This was uh, 49? 40 or 48? 48. 48. 48. Cleveland won? Or 49? Yeah, no, Cleveland. Cleveland won, but uh, uh, Detroit beat Feller the day before. If they had won, Cleveland had won, they would have clinched the pennant. But they beat Cleveland the day before, and then we were tied, and we both won the last day. Oh, I think I, maybe maybe they beat no, they beat Feller. I think it was the day before. You're gonna have to uh, figure that one out. But we tied, and we had one playoff game at Fenway, and uh, Gene Bearden beat us. Yeah, yeah. Red Sox fans will never forget that. Then there's that story that's repeated a lot about. I guess it was a day in honor of Joe when uh, your mom came out. That's that's what I started to tell. During that last day, I get off the track. Uh, mother and dad were talking to each other, and they were saying, "What is Joe trying to do?" He said, "What is Joe? What is Joe trying to do? He's trying to beat Dominic out of the pennant." <laughs> They didn't like that too much. And then there was then there was the incident, Larry, when they honored Joe on his day, when he was not feeling well and he had his baseball jacket on and we're standing before Mike. They had called me up to stand next to Joe and he put his arm around my shoulder 
and I, uh, he, I accused him of leaning on me to get me exhausted for the game. And at one point, if you notice that photo, my mouth is twisted, and I said, you want me to stay here? And he said, yes, because, you know, it wasn't my party, but they had asked me to come up for photos, and I was going to leave him there to do what he had to do. He said, no, he wanted me to stay. Wasn't that the day that your mother... Well, that, that's what I started. And she was from the first base side. She came across. She went right past Joe and came to me, and the crowd roared. They thought it went to the baby. That's a great story. Yeah. So when you look back, what did overall, what did baseball mean to you? Oh, it gave me that it was a springboard to my future, and uh, I will forever be grateful, <clears throat> and I will forever be grateful of the fact that I was privileged to be able to play baseball in the major league. When you stop to think, we only had <clears throat> 25 players on each team, there were only 16 teams, 400 people in the United States playing major league baseball, that's quite an honor. And to uh, uh, be in a, to me, I was in an enviable position, not only because I was capable of playing to the extent I did, but the fact that once again, I had a brother and a teammate who were the two greatest baseball players in the history of the game. So I was very grateful. And I will always, I mean, anybody that does anything to baseball might as well be doing it to me, detrimentally. They were detrimental in baseball. I just, I just can't visualize anybody doing. That's why I have often said that the Players Association is negligent to the extent that when one of its members uh, does something that is detrimental to baseball, instead of backing him to, to the fullest extent, I think they ought to call him on the carpet and let him know in no uncertain terms what his actions and whatever he has said if it was detrimental to baseball, then he should be uh, punished accordingly. The Players Association should do that along with baseball. You and your brothers were tremendous role models, or whatever you want to call it, for, for Italian-Americans all across the country. I mean, you, know, you represented the best of, of, of Italian-Americans. Well, that's nice to hear. Well, I mean, do you feel proud of your heritage? Oh, absolutely. I certainly do. I have no shame, if that's what you're saying, about being an Italian. Not in the least. <clears throat> uh, I've been honored with the Italian-American uh, uh, Italian Hall of Fame in Chicago. I've been elected, uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And I've been, uh, I'm, I'm in the Hall of Fame, the Red Sox Baseball Hall of Fame. So. I'm represented across the country, San Francisco, mid-country, mid and the West East Coast. So I find nothing wrong with that. All that's left is Cooperstown. All that's left is Cooperstown, but I, even in spite of it, I feel I'm represented across the country anyway. Are you, are you aware of how important you and Joe particularly have been? Well, I know how important Joe is. I've never, never felt that I was all that important. I've come, <clears throat> I've come to, uh, 
uh, be rather, uh, instead of, uh, oh, I don't know exactly how to say this, instead of being uh, in a position of being subservient, that uh, I feel now that I'm in a position to uh, operate, for the lack of a better expression, and as an executive in my life. If you follow what I'm trying to say, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I've had a tendency to be a great deal more independent and call a spade a spade, and, and I have done that. Well, you've earned that right. You've earned that right. Well, maybe that's maybe that's what's happened to me. You know, I mean, before I knew you as a you know, a heroic ball player from my very early days, from my parents, of course. But, you know, talking to you, I mean, I have much greater respect for you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Because, you know, as a human being, not as a physical athlete. I liken uh, my position to that of Ted Williams. When Ted Williams <coughs> first came up, 39-40, he admired Joe. He thought Joe, and he, and he still, and even in his last days, thought that Joe was the greatest all-around baseball player he had ever seen, uh, justified and so on. He admired Joe and looked up to him. And as the years went by, he felt that he kept creeping up on Joe, and I know that he felt on an equal plane with Joe in his last days. So I think that's maybe what I'm trying to say. And Joe admired Ted. Oh, uh, and it actually went out of his way to say that he thought Ted was the greatest hitter he'd ever seen. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting relationship. There. Yes, they, they both admired. They both, yes, exactly. They admired each other with no animosity whatsoever. I want to make sure you're keeping an eye on your time. Oh yeah, you have to. <coughs> oh, you got ten minutes. You want.